Amen. Who doesn't love that? Open your Bibles if you have them to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 6 to 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew, uh, a black Bible in the pew in front of you. Page 984 on that Bible. Page 984. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 10. One of, uh, one of Andrea and I's favorite shows to watch on TV is Fixer Upper. We, uh, we, loved, we started watching this show originally because we heard it was a show being filmed in Waco, Texas, which was 45 minutes from where we went to college. It was a couple hours south of where we, had, where we were living at the time. And uh, so we were naturally pretty interested in who would possibly be doing a, a Fixer Upper show in Waco. Lord knows it needs a lot of work. Um, and so... Uh, so we're watching this show, and it's very enticing. If you've never seen it, they, they take a, a, a house that is in desperate need of repair, and they virtually, they do everything to it except level it to the ground. At this point, I'm convinced it doesn't even matter what house you pick. Just pick a square on a piece of property, and they can turn it into a dream home. It's unbelievable the things that they can do with it. And so now people are like, we want to move to Waco because of what Chip and Joanna Gaines are doing in Waco. You don't want to move to Waco, trust me. <laughs> There's a reason it's got such a, a, a lot of work to do. Is They do, they have a lot of work to do there. But one of the things that's, that's most interesting, most appealing about this show to me, and something that I've come to respect as a homeowner over the years, is yard work. Just work around the house. I do most, most of my job is spent sitting at a desk or sitting talking with people or standing up behind a pulpit. There's very little sweat involved, all right, except in committee meetings. But outside of that, very little sweat involved. But sometimes when you get to do yard work, you start, you know, it, you get sweat on your brow. There's something very enjoyable about it. Uh, uh, there's something productive about it. At the end, you can actually see the fruits of your labor. So Andrea and I, this week, closed on a home. We are now homeowners in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. All right? Very good. Very good. For some reason, we thought of ourselves as Chip and Joanna Gaines, and that we could go in to a place, and we're just going to remake this place. And so yesterday, we spent all of our time doing yard work, and I'm exhausted right now, let me tell you. Uh, but it was enjoyable. So we, we start doing this yard work. It needs a, a ton of work, and, and the backyard is, is completely overgrown. And when I say overgrown, um, if you've lost a dog lately, uh, it might, we might find it. Um, but it is, it's, it's really overgrown. And so we are going in, and we're, we're doing all this work yesterday. And it's interesting that as you put shovel in the ground, and as, you, as sweat pours from your, your brow, you're thinking, I am doing nothing. I am just spending my own energy, and nothing is going to come of this. But then as you back away at the end of the day, and you look at what has been accomplished, there's a tremendous work there. That might not seem significant to the people driving by, but it definitely seems significant to us. As we look at the stuff that we've done so far, we see them as great improvements, and slowly but surely, day after day, time goes by, the more you continue to plow the ground, the more product you see at the end. In Colossians, we've spent a good bit of time 
dealing with the realities of the gospel, the truth of who God is and who we are in Christ. And, and Paul has said that if you're in Christ, then you're reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. Well, in our text this morning, Paul is going to take all of that you've been reconciled and apply it directly to the situations that the Colossian church is going through. And what we're going to be looking at is really for the next few weeks is essentially the so what for the Colossians. For the rest of chapter 2, Paul's going to expound on the sufficiency of Christ. That Christ is sufficient over and above all that the world has to offer. So this is really effectively a part one. And my hope is at the end of this sermon, and for the next couple of weeks really, that we'll begin to identify places in our lives where we knowingly or maybe even unknowingly have chosen fulfillment by means other than Christ. And that we'll give up those things and turn to Him instead. Let's look at our text this morning. Colossians 2, 6-10. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, as you'll probably notice, and as we mentioned just a minute ago, this part of the text from here on really strikes a more personal chord. Paul's looking straight at the Colossian church and the situations that they're in. And it seems as though Paul might actually know something about their situation. Now for centuries, people have debated whether or not Paul knows a particular heresy that the Colossians are inclined to believe and if he's combating those particular heresies. You'll see there, he says in verse 8, he calls them a human tradition, elemental spirits. And then later in, in verse 16, if you'll look down there, he says, uh, he, he talks about festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. And, and he goes on to list several things after that. So it's very possible that a particular sect of Jewish religious teachers have come into the church and have started persuading the Colossians to believe something more than Christ. Like they, they need Christ and something else to add to it. But it's also possible that Paul just knows the typical things that churches go through. That he knows what churches are going through in the area, maybe. That he knows the typical things that churches would be going through by now. Different ideas that they would be hearing so, so these might just be blanket warnings that are common fallacies that, that Paul is addressing to the Colossian church. But look at what he says here in verse 6. And this gets us to the first thing that I want you to see here. Um, he says in verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So the first thing that Paul tells them is, as they have received Christ, so walk in Him. It, it, it makes the question necessary. How have they received Christ? What is, what is Paul referring to here? Well, if you go back to chapter 1, Paul's actually referring back 
to Colossians chapter 1 with something he told him at the beginning of the letter. Colossians 1, 5. He says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it, is all, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So how did the Colossians receive Christ? They received it because of a faithful minister of Christ named Epaphras came to them and made Christ known to them. Not only that, but the content of his message, look what he says, the content of his message was about a heavenly hope. So it was by faithful Christian tradition that they received Christ. You received it from a faithful Christian preacher named Epaphras. So what is Paul telling them here? Just as you have received Christ because someone came along to you preaching to you the true gospel, continue to walk in that teaching. Continue to listen to those voices. Continue to hear that message. Don't deviate from the course. But verse 7, he tells them why it's important. Look at what he says. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Now, a few weeks ago, I asked, uh, I asked if there were any grammar nerds in the congregation. And only a few of you raised your hand. So I get it. Grammar is not the most appealing subject to talk about on a Sunday morning. And especially Greek grammar. You just say the phrase and people's eyes glaze over and roll back in the back of their head. I get it. But a couple of you are shaking your head. You're like, no, bring on the grammar. I get it. All right. But just stick with me for a second. I think you'll see what Paul's saying here. In the ESV, it reads just like this. Rooted and built up in him and established. But in the New American Standard Version, which some of you may have, it says, listen carefully, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established. You hear the difference? ESV is rooted and built up in him. The New American Standard is having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him. So the difference there, the New American Standard is bringing out the tense of the actual word that Paul uses. Whereas the ESV just tries to translate it exactly as it is. The New American Standard is bringing out that tense. So what does that mean? What is Paul saying here? That if you are a follower of Christ, you have been firmly rooted and are now being built up. The firmly rooted has already taken place. So Paul's depicting these Colossian Christians like a tree. Their roots have been dug down into the ground. They are in Christ. That part has already been done. They're hunkered down in the soil. They're firmly planted. And remember what we talked about a couple of weeks ago where, where Paul says he has now reconciled you. The reconciliation has already taken place and it's demonstrated in perseverance in the fact that this person perseveres to the end. We talked about that a few weeks ago. 
But here he's reinforcing that statement. He's saying, you ha- having been firmly rooted already in the ground in Christ. But then he goes to the next step. What's happening now? He says, now being built up and established. So with this tree metaphor, what Paul's essentially saying here, explaining, is justification and sanctification. Justification is the process by which you have been declared righteous before God. If you are a believer in Christ, a persevering believer in Christ, you have been declared righteous before God. Sanctification is the process where you are built up little by little, brick by brick, weed by weed. What it means, the point that I want us to see here, the first point, is that we are all a work in progress. Every last one of us is a work in progress. None of us have already made it. Not one single person can say, I've arrived finally. I am here. I am perfect. We are being conformed into the image of Christ by His grace, inch by inch. And hopefully, we can all say, I may not be what I should be, but praise God, I am not what I once was. If you talk to people that have been hurt, by, by people in the church, they'll all tell you the same thing. They'll say, you know, I expected this from the world, but I didn't really expect it from people in the church. And perhaps we've gone in with improper expectations as to what we're going to find in this room. Perhaps we've gone in thinking that the people that we'll find, have, we'll find there have already made it. That they're already perfect. That the people will find there, they won't won't be people that hurt me. They'll be people that have it all put together. They look like they do. I saw them fighting in the parking lot, but by the time they made it in the building, they had it all put together. We even want sometimes people to think that we have it all put together. But that's not what we find. Instead, we find a hospital for the sick instead of a museum for the saints. Paul tells us as much here that we're being built up brick by brick. That your sanctification, Paul calls it walking in Christ. He says, as you have received Christ, so walk in Him. That walking in Christ, how is it accomplished? By continuing to receive the true teaching of the gospel message time and time and time and time again. You received it from Epaphras. He came telling you about this heavenly hope. Continue to walk in it the same way. Continue to hear this faithful, consistent teaching. You need it. It is the Spirit's way that He progressively sanctifies you. Christians have always struggled with this crazy view of church attendance that it was optional. They've always had this struggle. I think this is why the author of Hebrews tells us not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. He addresses that very thing right there in the text of Hebrews. 
Since the inception of the church, people have tended sinfully to view attending church or coming to church as strictly an optional activity. I don't think the New Testament authors see it this way. I think they see it as a significant means of sanctification in our lives. Not because this building has any mystical properties to it, that it grants to you some superhero powers of sanctification. Not at all. Not that the Lord's Supper that we're going to celebrate in just a minute has any mystical powers to give you strength. But because you receive the true teaching of God's Word. And it's God that does the work of sanctifying. And He does it through the, through the Word. If you're a work in progress, then you cannot see participation in the church body as optional. It's just not possible. If we choose to stay at home or we choose you know, other activities or other priorities over being here on a regular basis, then what we're essentially saying is I'm either not interested in spiritual growth or I already have it all put together. I've reached the point of maturity. And if you think that you've already reached the point of maturity, just run it by your spouse real quick before you say. <laughs> They'll be the first ones to tell you no. They're already shaking their head. No, I don't want to, don't, not right now. I don't want to fight in church. All right. Paul's encouraging us to remain firmly anchored to Christ and to the good news of our salvation and continuing to pursue sound biblical teaching because we are a work in progress. We're like a house that Christ is renovating. Weed by weed, brick by brick. Shingle by shingle. How is this to be received by us? Well, he says, abounding in thanksgiving. I, I met with someone recently who asked this question as we're talking about the gospel. Why would he love us? And that is precisely the question. That question, that every time I think about that question, it always results in thanksgiving for me. Because I can't answer that question. The truth is, I have done nothing that I would merit His favor. I have done nothing that He should repay me with salvation or anything else. But on the cross of Christ, God emptied His wrath on His own Son for my sin. And not only did He give to me the gift of eternal life, but now He indwells me with His Spirit. And He works in me and refines me. Until my attitudes and affections reflect the very Spirit of God. How amazing is that? How can that result in anything but thanksgiving? If we truly see salvation as a gift of grace that I didn't deserve, how could we see that as anything but thanksgiving? He goes on to tell us in verse 8. He says, See to it, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He says, philosophy and empty deceit. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, some people will see that and they'll just write off all philosophy altogether. They'll drop out of their philosophical courses and all of those kinds of things. That's, that's not uh, what he's saying here. He, he's, he's clearly not pointing to all kinds of philosophy. He's, he's 
identifying the problem, the philosophy that's not according to Christ. Instead, the philosophy that has in mind according to human tradition. That's what he's pointing to. The philosophy that's got human tradition in mind. This is exactly the opposite kind of tradition that he pointed out in verse 6. If you remember, we're talking about the tradition that was passed on by the apostles to Epiphras, who Epiphras then passed it on to the church at Colossae. This kind of tradition, the tradition of faithful preachers, that's the kind of tradition you want to pursue. Hang on to the biblically faithful tradition of the apostles, but don't be taken captive, on the other hand, by human tradition. Tradition that is antithetical to Christ. So essentially, verse 8 is stating in the negative what 6 and 7 state in the positive. The traditions of the apostles taught to you by Epaphras will build on top of a strongly rooted foundation. But the tradition of men will tear it away. Will allow the weeds to to grow over the property. Then he says, not according to human tradition, but he says... It's according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, this could have a a wide range of meaning, the elemental spirits of the world. Um, But essentially what's going on in the church in Colossae, there's these groups, or at least around in the cities, there's these groups that are appealing to a a greater insights into mystery. You, listen to me. Yeah, it's good. You're a Christian. Okay, fine. But, but come over here and look at, look at these things. This will give you the full picture of what you're missing by following Christ. It's greater insights into the mystery of either how we came to be or whatever. Remember, he's talking to a group of Gentile Christians who came to Christ out of, no doubt, pagan idolatry. But understand... The biblical worldview does not see idolatry as simply bowing down to a wood or golden statue. Idolatry is specifically called out as demonic worship. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. Paul is saying that, that idolatry is no insignificant matter. And whether he's saying that there is a demon represented by the idol or that in idol worship you are worshiping something other than Christ and therefore you're going along with with the demons, either way, either way he's saying that, it still means effectively the same thing. That when you bow down to pagan practices, when you follow pagan ideology, when you pursue pagan philosophies, you're in league with the forces of darkness. It's effectively the same thing as bowing down to idols. The reason this is important is because I think what Paul is pointing at is significant about the philosophies that point away from Christ rather than to Him. These would be the same as bowing down to idols. They have the same effect. They have the appearance of wisdom They appeal to some other doctrine. But in the end, they're in league with Satan himself. Because in the end, all you're left with to conclude is there is no God. It has the appearance of wisdom, but it's foolishness. Look, it's no accident that the marketplace of ideas, both in the university, you can ask some of our professors in here, and in the secular society, that that people have been captivated by the theory of evolution. 
It's not because they all read the same book and they're convinced by the the same arguments. It's that they're starving for a philosophy that has the appearance of wisdom but rejects Christ out of hand. That's the center of it. It's not about facts. It's not about data. It's a a spiritual war. And the enemy has captured their minds and convinced them that they are more intelligent because of their rejection of God. But you understand in this text, Paul isn't talking to them, to people outside the church. Paul's talking to you and me. Paul's talking to us. Because what happens is not only are they captivated by it, but it starts to seep into the church culture as well. And then we begin to be captivated by it. And he's not only talking about evolutionary theory. It wasn't even a thing back then. He's talking about the incorporation of any worldview that points away from Christ rather than to him. That's not in accordance with Christ and his word. Notice that that Paul's not dealing with with people's immorality here. He'll do that next chapter. But he's not specifically dealing with immorality, the kinds of immoral practices that we would think of. He's dealing with sinful philosophies, sinful ideology, sinful ideas or notions, persuasive rhetoric that point away from Christ. Those things are serious, and they have a way of tearing down, working against the Spirit. But this becomes a tremendous problem for our churches today. Why don't you just think about this for a second? The vast majority of Christians will go from week to week and their only encounter with the Word of God is on Sunday morning. It's the only time, for most, statistically, for most of us in this room, the only time we'll ever even touch the Word of God is on Sunday morning when somebody else is reading it to us. It's somehow become acceptable for a Christian to be a Christian for 30 years and never have discipled anybody. For a Christian to be a Christian for 30 years and never have discipled anybody, maybe except for his children or her children, maybe. But otherwise, no one. It shouldn't be beyond the pale to ask a Christian who has been a Christian for 30 years to walk somebody through the book of Mark. It should be easily done. You should be able to take a new believer and walk them through the gospel. Shouldn't this Christian by now be so saturated in the word of God that they could lead anybody through the basic doctrines of faith? You see why this is a problem? If if you're not steeped in the word of God, and Paul says this is how the Holy Spirit is building you up, it's by steeping you in the word of God, building you up continually with faithful teaching, with your own faithful study, if this is how you're built up, then if we're not doing that, we are in danger of being picked off one by one, or maybe even in large quantities. Because here's the second thing that I want you to see out of this. The schemes of the world are actively working against your growth. The schemes of the world are actively working against your growth. It's not how we tend to think about it. We think about it like going to church, reading the Bible, that's building me up in faith, and the rest of the world is really ambivalent about where I am in Christ. But that's not what Paul says. 
We are built up by the Holy Spirit and everything else is working against our building up, working against our maturity. They're seeking to tear down that which has, should be built up and has, on the foundation that Christ has already laid. In other words, this is not a game. These are not fairy tales that we're teaching. There is a real enemy and his desire is to thresh every single one of you like wheat. How will you know when your worldview is being polluted? Well, if you're not steeped in the word of God, you won't. You continue to listen to Joel Osteen and Joyce Myers and other prosperity gospel heretics. Not having the ears to hear their deceitful teaching. And if that's you and you're listening to these two-bit hacks and maybe you think to yourself, well, I was sick and so on Sunday morning I turned them on and it was an uplifting message, it was encouraging, it was good. Let me be the force to warn you if no one else has. You are in danger of being swept away because your ears cannot hear their deceitful teaching. It's not funny. Turn it off. It's not worth listening to. I fear that our churches are not only gaining an appetite for worldly wisdom, but have lost an appetite for biblical doctrine. You just say the word theology and people's eyes glaze over and roll back in the back of their head, a lot like grammar. <laughs> in our worship services, we desire entertainment over worship. You know, he, I could really worship with that guy. Sure, he said hallelujah. He sang hallelujah a hundred times in a row without ever defining it or ever taking a breath. But he had cool swoopy hair and a deep v-neck. <laughs> I can really relate to him, you know? We're in trouble if that's what captivates our imagination. If that's what has captured our attention, we are in really deep trouble. The truth is, I'm a work in progress, and so I need the truths of Scripture to rattle between my ears every single week. And there are times... Some Sundays are better than others, but most of the time I have to come in here and force my mouth to sing praises to his name until my wicked heart believes it. That's the truth of what we're doing in worship. Because Satan is out to thresh all of us like wheat. Be on guard. Look at what he says then in verses 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So Paul comes back to Christ. He transitions back. And he says, what are these philosophers offering you? Well, they're offering you something that isn't Christ. But that's foolish because Christ is God. He is in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, he is wisdom. He is truth. You have found it. You reached the end of the game. You summited the mountain. You reached the source of the river. Whatever analogy you want to use, there's nowhere else to go. Anything you turn, if you turn away from Christ toward anything else, you have found less, not more. In him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. But more than that, you are full in Him. 
In other words, to turn to anything that points away from Christ is to follow a lie. Christ is the authority over all things. He currently rules and currently reigns over all creation. Paul's telling us that Christ is sufficient for everything we need. But the reason that He is sufficient, this is the third thing I want you to see, the reason that He is sufficient for us is because we are joined to His unique nature. He has a unique nature and we're joined to it. We're under His robe as He pulls us into the gates, as it were. In other words, you would never be able to reach God. You would never be able to be reconciled to God if it weren't for Christ. You would never be able to get to your purpose, which is to glorify God forever. It's the reason that you were created. You would never be able to do that if it weren't for Christ. So anything that points you away from Him ultimately leads to your destruction. Paul's already told us that Christ is supreme. We talked about that a few weeks ago, that the supremacy of Christ in all things. He's already told us that Christ is supreme, but now he's telling us that Christ is sufficient. The difference between supremacy and sufficiency is the difference between a king and a loving parent. See, a king rules and reigns over you and therefore deserves your allegiance, but he cares very little for your growth or your well-being, only that you obey his laws. Now, the parent, on the other hand, will feed you, will pick you up when you fall, will change your diaper, will care for you, and will grow you to maturity. So what Paul has now said in Colossians, essentially, is that in Christ, we have a supreme king and a sufficient savior who is not only worthy of our adoration and worship, but has promised to bring us to maturity. That's something that our friends cannot do for us. That's something that our spouse cannot do for us. That's something that our family cannot do for us. That's something that sex, alcohol, pornography cannot do for us. There are so many things that we will turn to time and time again as if they will be sufficient for our growth during this time. And let me tell you, They're all bankrupt. Christ is the supreme king and the sufficient savior. Only in him is there growth and maturity. Only in him does the property become valuable. So you see what the implications are of verses 9 and 10. It's not just don't get swept away. That's verse 8. But now he's actually encouraging us to press into Christ, to come in more, to dive in, to know more about who he is, about more about what his word says of him, about more of what his word says about who we are in Christ. So God is the source of truth and wisdom, and he has revealed it historically through his prophets, through Jesus, now through his Holy Spirit that lives within us, and by his word, the scriptures. He's given to us an open forum, as as Mitchell Jones reminded us the other night on Wednesday, to beseech him in prayer. For his children to throw ourselves at his feet. To not only proclaim him as king, but we actually get a court with the king of all creation to ask him to provide for our needs. How amazing is that? Are we availing ourselves of this privilege? 
Or instead of beseeching him in prayer and devouring his words in scripture, would we rather binge watch our Netflix queue? Folks, we're all a work in progress. Every single one of us. But what we need to remember as Christians is that the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, is what's weaving this tapestry of our lives. What's building us up brick by brick by brick. He's conforming us into the image of Christ this way. The work of the Spirit of Christ is slow, but it's eternal. And it needs no help from worldly wisdom. Hopefully, we can begin to identify these areas in our lives where we have sought to pursue other things other than Christ, where we've been tempted to maybe push away from Christ, push away from others, push away from the church, or maybe even just become uninterested in the things of God, I would encourage you to come back to repent and confess that sin before Him. That goes for anybody in here who's not a believer. You're in the worst of all possible situations where you've pushed away from Christ entirely. He offers to you the same gift. You've heard what we've been talking about. His death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf so that we don't have to face the wrath of God. That can be yours by grace through faith. Confess your unbelief to Him. Repent and turn to Him in faith and trust. But let's all proclaim Him as an all-sufficient Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the work that you continue to do in our lives, in our hearts, in this body, the way you are continuing to unite us over these weeks. Lord, I love to see the way that your body responds to your prodding, the way that we respond in faith and repentance and confession of sin. I pray that you would continue to do that in and amongst these people here, in myself included. Lord, convict us where we have grievously stepped around your word. Help us to come back to it. Help us to trust in your spirit's work of building us up brick by brick. Lord, we thank you for everything that you do in us, through us, to us, and in spite of us. In Jesus' name, amen.